about two or three years ago, I went coyote hunting with Don Doris. Uh, some of you know Don. He's a professional uh, coyote hunter. And uh, believe me, you have not been coyote hunting until you've been coyote hunting with Don Doris. He uh, runs them down uh, in a uh, four-wheel drive vehicle. He's had a number of these uh, these automobiles. The Hawaii desert is littered with the wreckage of uh, Don's former vehicles. Uh, it's quite an experience. No roll bar, uh, no seat belt, no windshield. It's just you and Don Doris and the elements. He uh, runs them down. And you have not lived until you have chased a flat-out running coyote across the Hawaii desert at 50 miles an hour. That is a trip, believe me. All sorts of uh, feelings went through my mind. Uh, the first was sheer terror. Uh, the second was that I'd never see my wife and children again. And uh, I learned on the trip a number of uh, stories about Don. The stories are legion. Some of you uh, know him quite well and know what, uh, what sort of person he is. But his nephew, Artie, told me about an incident that actually happened once. Uh, Don chased a coyote down into its hole. It was wounded. He'd taken a shot at it and wounded it and went down in the hole. And Don sent his dog after the coyote. The dog refused to go in the hole. Uh, the dog was no fool. He wasn't going to go in that hole after a wounded coyote. Uh, so Don got a little short stick about two feet long and crawled in the hole after the coyote and dragged it out. Artie's comment was, uh, when Don Doris goes after a coyote, he just gets out his little stick and he goes after him. I thought of that story while I was reading through uh, the last chapter of 2 Corinthians this past week because that's precisely what Paul does. He gets out his stick and he goes after it. Will you turn with me to the 13th chapter of 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 13. We finally come to the end of this book. It's nice to finish something, isn't it? It's been six months making our way. We've been six months making our way through this book. I've learned a lot about Paul. I, I'm sure you have as well. This is the most intensely personal autobi autobiographical uh, letter in all of the uh, collection of Pauline uh, books. You see more of the inside of Paul. You see more of what he would describe as his weakness than in any other portion of, of the New Testament. It's been very revealing. Now we see another side of Paul in, in uh, chapter 13 that we've not seen up to this point, at least not to this extent. Paul, this, Paul says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You'll notice that's a quotation. If you have a New American Standard Bible, the side note refers you back to Deuteronomy 19, the Old Testament uh, portion of Scripture from which this quote is taken. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Interesting. Paul has been talking throughout the book about his reluctance to use his authority as an apostle. Now he claims he's coming to Corinth and he will, he will act in, in power and uh, he will not spare anyone. Now, when I first read this passage this past week, it seemed to me that Paul was 
was using this Old Testament quotation in an unusual way. Certainly not the way that we would apply this passage. It sounds as though he's saying, uh, this is the third time I'm coming. This is my third witness to you. Uh, it takes two or three witnesses to confirm a thing. I've said it three times. Third time's a charm. And this is it. Your time is up. But that's not what he's saying. He's not, uh, he's not going back to this Old Testament passage to underscore the fact that he's coming three times. He's simply reminding them that this is, this is his third visit. He came on the first occasion to plant the church. He came on the second occasion to try to set things right within the church. He had written a number of letters. Uh, this would be the fourth, two of which are preserved in the New Testament, two of which are lost. He was now coming the third time, and he would act in, in judgment. And the point that he makes from this Old Testament quotation is that there would be a judicial hearing. There would be a, a legal proceeding within the church by which they would take care of the problems within the church. Paul is not saying merely that I'm going to come and pull my apostolic rank. He's, he says, you're going to see my authority because we're going to put into action the proceeding that our Lord told us to, uh, to enact whenever there is a difficulty within the church. And he's simply referring to the, uh, the principle that our Lord enunciated in Matthew 18 and uh, the means by which we deal with problems within the church. We've talked about that uh, proceeding a number of times in this body. Jesus said if, in Matthew 18, if, if your brother or your sister sins, don't, uh, don't go talk to someone else about their sin. Don't, don't gather a group of Christians and pray for them that they'll be delivered from their sin. As a matter of fact, don't talk to anybody but the sinner about their sin. Go to them and appeal to them to, uh, to respond to the Lordship of Christ and, and to set things right in their heart and begin to obey. It's a, it's a rescue that, we're, that, that, we, uh, that we enact. It's a, we want to go out and win people that are lost, and bring them back. Paul says, that's a procedure. Go after them. Don't let them get away. Don't ignore them. Don't gossip about them. Go and retrieve them. Go rescue them. That's the first step. If they won't hear you, Jesus said, then take two or three. Uh, that's so they won't think this is merely personal. That puts it on a different footing. This is the church that's concerned. And then Jesus quoted the same passage that Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 19. A thing is established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. That puts it on a different basis. And then Jesus said, if they still won't hear you, then announce it to the church. Not in a scornful way, but, uh, with, uh, but with the intent of the entire church going after that individual and, and bringing them back. It's not a matter of excommunication at that point. You shouldn't even think in those terms. But you announce it to the church so that everyone in that body of believers can go after that person and show them the kind of loving concern that, that our Lord wants us to have for one another so we can grow up to maturity because we have a task to do in the world. It's God's intention that we as believers go into the world and, and become salt and light to emit the, the fragrance the aroma of Christ in every realm of, of life, in every sphere of society. And uh, we need to help one another grow up to maturity so we can be what the church was intended to be. So if you see a brother who's not salt and light, you, you, you go and you help him. And if they won't hear you, then you take two or three. And if they won't hear the two or three, then, then you announce it to the church. And then Jesus said, if they won't listen to the church, if they've hardened their heart to that point, then you, you have to, for a time, put them outside the church so they can 
They can come to their senses, as Paul puts it in another place, see what they're doing to themselves, and, and come back to the Lord and to his body. Again, it's, it's a redemptive thing. It's not really that you cut them off and it's, you know, good riddance, we got rid of that troublesome church member. That's not the point at all. It's so they can be saved and put back, uh, back, to, uh, uh, back to work, doing what God intended them to do. Now, that's a tough one. We, we don't like to do that, but that's what Paul is talking about here. It, it's not easy, particularly in our world where now legal action is being taken against churches that, that, that want to obey the Lord in this proceeding. And as you know, there have been legal judgments against churches in the, in the five-figure uh, category, five-number category. It's a serious thing today to even contemplate having to do this sort of thing. But that's what Paul plan to do when he got to Corinth, and that's the kind of thing that we need to be willing. We, we do it with broken hearts, always. It's not with glee, but it needs to be done. Because that's, that's the one way that God has given to us to set things right and to redeem uh, people that have wandered uh, away from the truth. I have a, a dear friend who was involved with me in a ministry to university students years ago, very prominent scientist and spokesman for, for, the, for the church in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, this, this man had been a homosexual before he became a Christian, and after being very active and very prominent in Christian circles for a number of years, fell back into the sin of homosexuality. And, and uh, this uh, procedure was carried out on his behalf. It was tough. A number of us went to him individually, and he wouldn't respond. And, and then eventually we had to make an announcement to the, the body of Christians, to two different churches that he was involved with in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was hard. It was heartbreaking. And uh, years went by, and, and he didn't respond. But uh, after I had been here in Boise for a couple of years... I received this letter. Several years ago, the congregation of PBC and South Hills Community Church took public action against me in accordance with Matthew 18. The charges were true. I cannot reverse history and relive the events that led to my downfall. I have harmed many people and brought ruin to myself. Because I was an outspoken, prominent member of the Christian community, my sins have been all the more deplorable and horrendous. After I became a Christian some 18 years ago, I failed to deal thoroughly with lust and covetousness. In time, I became self-deceived, proud, and arrogant. Moreover, eventually, God shouted upon the housetops that which I had tried desperately to keep hidden. God finally let me go into alcoholism and sexual immorality, both of which were worse than I had experienced before my conversion. Twice I went through the horror and hell of manic-depressive psychoses, as, as did Nebuchadnezzar that I might learn that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm very fortunate to be alive. I came very close to suicide and should have died in ignominy and disgrace, except for the scripture which says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? I am in need of your forgiveness, for I have wronged you all. I earnestly desire your prayers for wholeness and complete deliverance from homosexuality. The church widely believes today that there is no cure for homosexuality beyond arrested development as a celibate. I am certain that God can do much more than he has already done for me and for countless others in this area who are afflicted with this crippling disease. 
It is impossible for me to retrace my footsteps and right every wrong. However, I welcome the opportunity to meet and pray with any individuals who have something against me that needs resolution. I am looking for and waiting for the further grace and mercy of God in this matter. What we have bound on earth has been bound in heaven. I now know your actions were done in love for my good and that for the body. And those of you that know this gentleman know that he's now back fully in service, useful to God. He was rescued, you see. The whole thing was done in a spirit of tenderness and love. There was no scorn or rebuff. We weren't put off by the fact that he was gay. That's not the point. He was in trouble. And something had to be done. Now that's what Paul is talking about here. We've seen the gracious heart of this apostle through, throughout the book. He, he's not, he's not, there's no hardness in the man. He was full of love and compassion. He was a gentle man. But he realized that something had to be done. And so he insisted, when he came to Corinth, that they follow his lead. Now he goes on in verses 3 to talk about himself a bit and some of his feelings about the way they perceived him. Since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, uh, I'm sorry, I misread that. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, but he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. You know what people were saying about the Apostle Paul. His detractors were saying that he really is a very weak sort of person. You know, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't have a commanding presence. He doesn't uh, raise his voice. He doesn't order people around. has no leadership skills. When he comes into the room, he sits in the back. He doesn't always put himself up front. He isn't always talking. He doesn't want everything to center around himself. He's a very humble, quiet, gentle, gracious man. What kind of leader is that? What could, it, what could a man like that do? And uh, Paul says, well, if you want an exhibit of someone who, who is characterized by strength growing out of weakness, look at the Lord. That's exhibit A. He was crucified in conditions of weakness. There's nothing about a crucifixion that, that bestows honor or dignity upon the crucified. It's a, the most demeaning form of, of uh, punishment that could be inflicted upon anyone. And when he hung on the cross, he didn't look like God Almighty. He was, he was weak, and he looked powerless. But all he did by that simple act of weakness is save the world. You see what he's saying? By simply obeying God right where he was, being willing to put himself to death, he saved the entire world. That's what Paul is saying. I don't have to throw my weight around, he says. I don't have to insist that everyone obey me. There is, there is power and authority in anyone who quietly follows the Lord, what, whatever it may mean. And uh, he goes on in the verses that follow to elaborate. Uh, look at verse 7. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you might do, so, uh, that you might do what is right, even though we should appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. 
For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, in order that when present I may not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. You see what he's saying? Paul says, my goal is to work for your completion. He uses an interesting word. Uh, it's a word that's used in the Gospels to uh, describe the, the, the mending of, of nets by the apostles. Jesus was walking by the seashore, and the apostles had spent a night fishing, and he, he encountered them on the beach, and they were mending their nets. That's the word. It's also a word that's used in classical Greek for setting bones. Uh, basically, the word means to get things back together that have been in disorder. I suppose our idiom today would be to help people get themselves back together. That's our goal. Paul says that's what, that's what we're after. That's what we want. I can do nothing against the truth, by which he means the gospel. Basically, the proclamation of the gospel is to the end that people get themselves back together, is, is the praise him saying for us. People are living broken, fractured lives. They're not whole. They're empty. They're like T.S. Eliot's hollow men. They don't know what they're living for. They don't have any purpose or meaning to existence. They're living guilt-ridden, uh, heavy-laden lives. And, and we can help them get themselves back together. same is true of Christians. Many of you are, are looking back on a, on a fractured life. You've been broken by divorce or by some psychological problems that you've struggled with and you just feel empty and decimated. Well, what we want to do is help people like this get back together. And Paul says, that's, that's why I want to live my life doing that sort of thing. That's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. There's nothing wrong with using our leisure time well to do things that we love to do, to water ski and to hunt and to fish and to do handiwork and handwork and to beautify our homes and take care of our bodies. There's nothing wrong with pursuing a, a vocation vigorously. There's nothing wrong with being involved in civic activities. Those things are part of our life. But the heart, as I said last week, the heart of all existence is helping people to get their lives back together again. And if we're not doing that, we're not storing up treasure in heaven. We're investing ourselves in things that that ultimately will not matter. They may not be wrong, but one of these days it's all going to go poof and burn up and there will be nothing left. And we'll stand before the Lord with empty hands. The only thing that matters is helping people to get their lives together. And Paul says, that's what I aim for, even if it means that I am not approved. If insisting on my authority and asking that everyone grant to me the honor that's due me, if that puts people off and keeps others from getting their lives together, Paul says, I'll forego all of that. I'll give it up. I don't care what you think of me. I can't do anything against the truth. I'm going to do anything that frustrates others in their efforts to, to get to know God and grow in that relationship. Even if I'm disapproved, he says, I want you to be approved. Carolyn and I were talking about this passage this last week, and she commented on the fact that we're very much like spies in, a, in another country serving, uh, serving our own nation. You know, spies are often very talented, highly skilled people, highly intelligent, well-trained. You know, if you go overseas as a spy someday, you, know, you may have the rank of colonel in the United States Army here, and you may be... Uh, uh, trained in martial arts, you know, your little finger is a registered weapon and you can kill with your right earlobe and all these uh, marvelous things that they, they train you to do. Highly adept at being a spy. But you go overseas 
and you get a job sweeping streets because you don't want to make any rackets. You don't want anybody to notice you because if they see you, it may detract from what you were trying to do. So you stay undercover. But you have tremendous authority, see? You have, you have the resources of the nation that you represent behind you. Now, that's what Paul is saying. I don't have to have any recognition. Nobody has to know who I am. doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it's better for me to, to be in a position of weakness because I know that out of that grows all the strength of God that will help others turn their lives around and get themselves together. Now, up to this point, Paul has been talking about himself. Now, he turns the thing around. And uh, he turns the tables on it. That's what he does. It's almost like looking through a microscope at an insect, and then suddenly you observe there is this big compound bug eye looking back at you through the microscope, and the thing is taking notes down there. He turns the whole thing around. Verse 5. Look, look at this with me. Verse 5. Test yourself, he says, to see if you're in the faith. Oh. Examine yourself. You think you've been examining me. You've been looking at my credentials. Wait, wait. Let's, let's take a look at your credentials. Test yourself. Examine yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. There's a word that it must have been one of Paul's favorite words. He, he uses it dozens of times in his epistle, and it turns up five different times. Actually, I think six times in this passage. Back in verse 3, it's translated proof, at least in the New American Standard. It's translated proof. In verse 5, it's translated examine yourselves. Uh, at the end of verse 5, unless indeed you fail the test, it's the same word negated there. And then again in verse 6, do not fail the test. Same word. Verse 7, it's translated approved and unapproved. That's an interesting word. Let's say it's one of Paul's favorites. Pregnant word. has a lot of, a lot of meaning and significance in it. Uh, archaeologists uh, very often find vases with this word. It's the Greek word dokimos. That's the noun form of it on the bottom of the vase, or sometimes the negated form, ah, dokimas. Uh, it's sort of like our underwriter, uh, library, uh, underwriter laboratory seal, or good housekeeping seal of approval. It was the way in which they signified the authenticity of, of the piece of merchandise that you purchased. <laughs> the problem in those days was that there were unscrupulous merchants, just as there are today. You know, make the throw pot and put it in the furnace, and there'd be a, a foreign article, a foreign particle or something, a rock in the clay, and the heat would concentrate at that point. It'd crack the vase, and uh, unscrupulous merchants would uh, take the vase and fill it up with wax, fill the crack up with wax, and they'd glaze over it again, and they'd sell it. You wouldn't know whether it was a real thing or not. You'd take it home and, and put it in your uh, little oven. They had these little clay ovens that they baked in, and, and the wax, of course, would run out, and the, and the article would be no good. So what uh, wise housewives did in those days is to take the vase, and before they'd buy it, they'd go outside and they'd hold it up to the sun. And they'd look through the vase at the sun, and they could see the uh, wax. They could see the cracks. In fact, the Greek word for authenticity, eilakrinos, is the word, means judged by the sun. 
And our word in English, sincere, comes from the same practice. Sincere comes from two Latin words, sinna, without, and cara, without wax. Same idea. So what Paul is saying is, hold your life up to the light of reality and see if it's bogus. Do you have the real thing? Have you got the real stuff? Or is it a sham? You see, there were a lot of people in Corinth that claimed to be Christians, but they were not. And they had been examining Paul's credentials. And Paul says, I'm willing to submit to this. You, 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 can, you can analyze my life and my gifts and my ministry as much as you want to. But, oh yeah, you need to look at yourself. You may not even be a Christian. Are you the real article? Or are you playing games? Are you authentic or are you spurious? Now, that's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. I need to ask it of myself and you need to ask it of yourself because of yourselves because no one can answer it for anyone else. I can't answer it for you. You can't answer it for me. Paul doesn't ask us to. He asks us to answer for herself. Examine yourself. And notice the way he puts it. He does not say examine yourself whether or not you're a Christian. He says, examine yourself to see if Christ is in you. There's all the difference in the world in that phrase. Because what Paul is saying is that the marks of authentic Christianity is a change in the inner man, in the inner woman. It has nothing to do with activism. It has nothing to do with how involved we are in in church. There were people in the city of Corinth, there were elders in that church, they were teaching Sunday school classes, Sunday school superintendents, small group Bible study leaders. They were in high positions in the church and they weren't Christians. They were activists, but they weren't they didn't have the real thing. God said through the prophet Isaiah at one point, What in the world said to Israel, What in the world are your people doing? Trampling my courts. Why are you muddying up my floor? Who let you into my temple, he says. (laughs) I can't stand iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, the fact that they were attending the temple all the time was was inconsonant with their their profession. They, they They were full of wickedness, and yet they were very active in church. Uh, paying a tithe doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus said of the disciples, uh, said to the disciples of the Pharisees, they, they, they tithe dill and mint and cumin. You know how small a dill seed is. Apparently, they were so scrupulous in their observance of the tenth of the tithe that they actually counted out a tenth of all the dill seeds. And they tithed that to the temple uh, treasury. But uh, he says, look, you, you've ignored the weightier matters of the law, justice, righteousness. So it's not a matter of paying the tithe, nor is it a matter of talk. There are a lot of people, as Jesus said, that say, Lord, Lord, and, and, and our Lord has to say to them, I never knew you. Now, you see, the real test is what's happening down inside to you and me. Are we really changing? Are we becoming more tender and at the same time more tough? Do you find yourself becoming more courageous about moral issues? But, uh, and in that sense, tough on yourself. But at the same time, more tender toward people. That's the real mark. Do you love people? Do you have compassion for them? 
do you see a growing awareness of other people's needs and a greater sensitivity to others? That's the mark. And it's not, see, the mark is not perfection. If it were, none of us would qualify. But the question is, what is the intent of our heart? What do you want? And do you see that internal change taking place? George MacDonald said, a good man or good woman is one around whose gate and garden children are unafraid to play. I've always loved that phrase because uh, it indicates that the mark of a good person is that they really love children more than they love their grass or their flowers or anything else. They're concerned about these little people that Jesus loves so much. See, those, it's those little things that indicate the true nature of, of our heart, the tenor of our heart, you see? That's why Paul says, judge yourself. Test yourself. Hold yourself, your life up to the light of the reality. Are you changing internally? Are you getting easier to live with? Are you less defensive? Are you more patient with people? Are you more tolerant of others on the outside? Are you becoming less and less of a racist? Are you less intolerant of those who are, who are uh, not of your political uh, ilk? Those are the marks, you see. Do we love people? Do we really care about them? Um, one of the problems, I think, and I'm going to stick my neck out here, so just stick with me for a minute. One of the problems, I think, with the evangelical church is a deeply rooted legalism that affects us all. And it misses the point. We can have everything right and at the same time have everything wrong. I was told when I was a child growing up, and perhaps you were too, that Christians don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't go to movies, they don't dance, they don't chew tobacco, and they don't go with girls that do. <laughs> and they don't play cards. There's a unholy five or filthy four or whatever that you don't do, and if you don't do those things, then you're a Christian. Now, there are all sorts of reasons not to drink or smoke. I think smoking is kind of a foolish habit. It's really destructive to your body, but I do a lot of other things that are just as destructive to my body, and so do you. And there are all kinds of reasons, I think, not to drink. Scripture teaches moderation in all things. The biblical standard is moderation, not abstinence, but there may be reasons why you as a Christian choose to abstain. That's fine. But those are externals. And they have nothing to do with the heart. And unfortunately, I know people who don't do any of those things, and they're filled with bitterness and resentment, and they're unforgiving, and they're hostile toward people who do those things, and they do not display the grace of God. And you can see it in their homes. You can see it in the way they treat their children. You can see it in the way they treat their wives. You can see it in their businesses, and it doesn't make any difference what they say unless there is a softening of the heart. I think they need to test themselves to see whether or not they're in the faith. Activism means nothing. Tithing means nothing. Talk means nothing. Uh, abstinence from these things means nothing unless there is a change in the inner person. You're growing to be more and more like Christ. You're getting sweeter. You're getting easier to live with. You're, you're harder on yourself, but you're more, more tender toward others. Uh, Carolyn and I like to rummage around in 
garage sales, and I picked up a treasure two weeks ago. <laughs> I picked up a set of a twenty volume set of the world's masterpieces, edited and published in nineteen oh one for five dollars. <clears throat> has uh, most of Luther's table talks in it, all kinds of stuff. I couldn't believe it when I found it. And I found in one of these volumes a series, a set of uh, George MacDonald stories that I'd never read before. You all know that I'm kind of hooked on George MacDonald. He's not very well known, but he was the man that, that was behind C.S. Lewis's conversion. Some of his stuff I don't understand at all, but some of it really touches my heart. And I came across a story that says precisely what I wanted to say from Paul's writings this morning. And I wish I could read the entire story to you. I don't have time. But let me tell you as much as I can and then read the last part because I think his words are, are so uh, helpful. It tells the story of a young uh, parson uh, of the Church of Scotland, Presbyterian parson, who was spending his first day in his parish, the city of Marshmallows, they called it. And uh, there must be some significance in that. But he only knew one, one person in, in the town. It was a little boy. But he wanted to meet his parishioners. So uh, he went downtown. He saw the little boy. The little boy took him in to meet his mother. And he thought, aha, here's my chance to, to make some spiritual contribution to someone. His mother ran a little shop in the middle of town. Turns out his mother was a, really a very evil person. Beautiful woman, as he describes her but uh, just evil to the core. He described her as uh, appearing to him like the specter in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And he was very much repelled by her, and he tried to, to talk to her about spiritual things. She wasn't at all interested. So he wanted to do something redemptive. He saw a can of tobacco on the, on the shelf. He didn't smoke. But he thought he'd buy a can of tobacco from her, which would just be some way of helping her out financially. So he bought the tobacco and... and uh, she cut him off, kept him from talking to her anymore about spiritual things. He went outside thinking he'd find the little boy and he could help him. Couldn't find the little boy, so he wandered through town. He came across this elderly couple. I'm short-circuiting the story because there's a lot in between. But he, he finds this elderly couple, old Robbins, he calls him and his wife. Finds out this man is very poor. The harvest is over. He has no money. And uh, the parson thinks, well, I'll invite him to uh, work in my garden. That way I can help him out. So he does. He makes him that offer. The man says, oh, no, I'm too old to dig. And, and his wife says, oh, man. He says, why don't you tell him why you won't help out? He says, you know, it's because of Simmons. And Simmons was an elderly gentleman up the road who depended upon the, the vicar's uh, garden for his living. And had he taken that job, he would have taken it away from old Simmons. So you begin to see something of the heart of this man. So after a bit, they start talking about all sorts of things, and uh, the, the uh, young parson asks, the, uh, asks Robbins, he reaches in his pocket, he gets out the tin of tobacco, and he says, do you smoke, sir? And he says, well, uh, yes, I do. He says, though I don't spend much on backy, uh, I, I, I rarely have the money to spend, on, uh, spend it on tobacco. His wife says, oh, old man, how you do go on? Don't you know? She says, tell, tell the vicar why you don't spend much on your tobacco. He says, because you buy tea for me. And the old man says, well, tea is good for me. I like tea, he said. And I, you know, uh, it's much better for me to drink tea than to smoke tobacco. I'm sure it's more healthy. 
And uh, he says to the vicar, what, what do you think about smoking tobacco? Parson says, oh, Paul to me. He says, well, it was a problem to the, to the parson that was here before you. And uh, let me pick up the conversation at that point. Since the parson before gave me a thundering broadside, to be sure, about his smoking. So I was in two minds whether I ought to go on with my pipe or not. And how did you settle the question, Rogers? The parson asked. Why, I followed my own chart, sir. Quite right, he says. One mustn't mind too much what other people think. Oh, no, that's not what I meant, sir. What do you mean, then? I I should like to know, the parson asked. Well, sir, I mean that I said to myself, now, old Rogers, what do you think the Lord would say about this backy business? And what did you think he would say, I asked. Why, sir, I thought he would say, old Rogers, have your backy. Only mind ye don't grumble when ye ain't got none. (laughs) And that says it all. I, I hesitate to even say anything because you can't embellish a statement like that. You try to explain it and you explain it away. The whole point that he's making is that God's not so concerned about these externals. There may be reasons, Christian reasons and non-Christians to do them or not do them, but that, that's, not the, that's not the point. What God is looking for is that internal change of heart. Are we more forgiving? Are we more loving toward our wives? Will, will you give up your money to buy tea for your wives? It's that kind of thing that matters. Now, some of you know. I, I, some of you I know are, are are wondering where you stand because you're not sure whether Christ is in you. Perhaps you became a Christian at the Billy Graham Crusade, or someone shared the four laws with you, and you uh, you prayed the prayer at the end of the booklet and. For a while, you had a great deal of zeal for God, but now it's faded away and you're back living with your boyfriend or girlfriend and some of your old habits have gripped you again and you're wondering whether you belong to God or not. Let me, let me ask you the question. How, how do you feel about where you are? Do you feel comfortable? Or is it good to be back to normal? Do you feel that that's where you belong? Then if that's true, then then you may have never belonged to God in the first place. But if your heart is empty, if you're hurting, if you're weary, if you know that that you're in the wrong place, if you yearn for something more, you see, that's the life of our Lord Jesus within you that's appealing to you. That's the mark. Do you want out? Then that's the mark that you belong to him. I'm of the old school. I'm a firm believer in the once saved, always saved theology of sanctification. But I think it needs to be explained. I think the doctrine of eternal security ought to be stated that those that have been truly regenerated will endure to the end. There are people that look awfully good. They make a profession of faith. They look like they're Christians. They do all the Christian things that Christians are supposed to do. But their hearts have never been changed. They've never been born again. And so they can go back to the old life and it doesn't hurt. They don't care. I think you can go a long way, as a matter of fact, in professing faith in Christ. You can look awfully good. As Jesus put it, you can do mighty works in his name. You can even do miracles in his name. But there's never been, way down deep inside, that submission to the Lordship of Christ that results in a change of heart, that results in a change of character. Now, if you're back in a a far, far country... 
and you know it, and you long for home and for the Father, then you know that he is your Father. That's the mark. Uh, Peter, with this I'm through, I know my time is up, but Peter has a comment to make on certain people that consider themselves as consider themselves to be of the church, but were not. Uh, and he describes him this way. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is, they've come out of the world and they have professed faith in, in Christ, and they are again entangled in them, that is, the defilements of the world, and are overcome, that is, they, they just don't care. They feel very comfortable there. It's far worse for them in that state than in the former, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them, and as it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, I know exactly what, what Peter's talking about. I used to have I used to raise pigs. As a matter of fact, I, one of my claims to fame down in Texas is that my sow had the heaviest litter of pigs in the state of Texas. She was a dandy. And I used to take her to the State Fair of Texas every year. We, she, uh, she was a Duroc, and she was, uh, you know, Durocs are supposed to be kind of a wine color, and she was sort of an ugly yellow color. So we used to put cordovan shoe polish all over her. <laughs> Clean her up, give her a bath, polish her hooves. Ah, she was a beauty. She was just absolutely a beauty. We take her to the state fair, and she was on this nice clean straw. And I used to sleep with her. I'd spend the night there, and after a week, I'd, she'd smell better than I did. <laughs> and after the fair, we'd take her home. Right below our house, there was a we call them tanks in Texas. It was just a pond. And, if you've ever been to Texas, you know about the first two feet of soil is black gumbo mud, and there was just, just this great mud puddle all around that tank. You know what that pig would do the minute we let her out of the out of the trailer? Boy, she she wouldn't uh, she just made a beeline for that mud puddle, and she would stand right in the middle of it and close her eyes, and she'd just fall right over sideways. <laughs> And roll her eyes and grunt and squeal, and she just loved it. She was in a hog heaven. You know, it never did disappoint me. I, she's just true to her nature. That's what a pig does. And you see, that's the analogy that, that Peter is making. He's not say that, saying that you and I are pigs. He's just saying he's, he's using an illustration, a very homely illustration that anyone would understand. Pigs act like pigs because that's their nature. And if we can go back to the old life and love it, then our nature is not changed. Our hearts have never been regenerated. We're just the same as we always were. And that's why we need to take our life out and look at it in the light of reality. What's going on inside, regardless of where you are right now? What's going on? You long for something better. Do you see your life changing? Are you becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus? And then do you also see that we have a responsibility to help one another? If we're going to get on with the business of reaching this world and making our, our influence felt, it's not going to be necessarily through direct political action or direct social action. It's going to be as you and I 
infiltrate all of society, pervade our culture at every level of life, and we live out the life of Christ there. We're a, a sweet fragrance to people of the life of Christ. So we've got to help each other. We're all in this thing together. None of us is alone. So if you see me stepping out of line, you come rescue me. If we see you stepping out of line, we'll, we'll come rescue you. So we can grow up and get about the business of doing what God has called us in this world. After all, that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that satisfies. Let's pray. Hard words, Lord. These are hard words and hard to endure. And who of us can stand? There isn't one of us here that feels that we've arrived or that we have the right to claim anything apart from uh, from your goodness and your grace. You've done it all for us. And we thank you for that. We're well aware of our sin. We know that the tendencies that we have, the thoughts that go through our mind, the ideas that come unbidden to our uh, to our, uh, our thought life. And uh, we know what we're capable of doing. We know what we have done. We know what we're intending to do. And Lord, we know that you've rescued us from all of that. And that you're about the business of making us more like you. And we're thankful for that. Grateful for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your love for the power that is demonstrated in the resurrection that is capable of taking us out of our deadness and giving us life. That's what we long for, Lord. We want to be useful. And so we ask that you enable us to get our lives together so that we can begin to affect the lives of others. We thank you for a love like yours that makes it possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.